You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Invite people to church seeking to share the gospel, seeking to have uh, conversations uh, with people uh, who may be interested or open or even far from God because we, uh, we see uh, and recognize the opportunity that Easter provides uh, to talk about uh, our faith. And, and yet, as it comes to the history of Christianity, uh, Easter um, was the launch of the mission of the church. Um, and, and, and the, um, the development of God's plan, it was, it was following uh, the resurrection of Christ that the mission began and God's people were, were sent out uh, on mission uh, to share the gospel and to make disciples of the nations and uh, following Jesus' resurrection, the coming of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit to enable and empower believers uh, to, to bear witness to Christ. Uh, we see that, that Easter really launched the mission of the church. And so, um, <clears throat> so as we talk about evangelism, uh, and we do so on the heels of Easter, it's very fitting uh, that we do so. And yet, I, I want to give a word about evangelism, because we've, uh, as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's been various times where we've kind of looked at uh, how the Gospel of Mark helps us think about sharing our faith. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's nothing like talking about evangelism and prayer meetings that make Christians feel guilty. Uh, those are the two things that get you, uh, right? Um, and and it, can be, it can be challenging to talk about in a way uh, that both is convictional because I think we need, there are things in our life that we need to be convicted of that keep us from sharing the gospel. And yet the motive for obedience as well as the motive for evangelism ought to be an overflow of joy. It ought to be an overflow of delight in Christ. Uh, we, we talk a lot about our uh, our mission statement being the desire to multiply disciples who delight in, declare, and display the gospel. And the order of those three uh, Ds, if you will, are important, right? To declare and display the gospel without delight will eventually fizzle out or, uh, or it, will, it will bury you because of the, the guilt of not doing it well. Um, and so <clears throat> all that we do, we want it to flow from a, a place of delight. And so uh, there are things that I think he says throughout here. Uh, I remember reading this book back in... 2019 or so, I think, when it came out, somewhere around there, um, and uh, and being deeply convicted and encouraged by it. Um, and so I would encourage you, uh, if you um, if you are interested, to pick up a copy of this. As we sent a, a link. There's a free PDF. The Gospel Coalition has made a free PDF of this available, and then I think the book's like $16 uh, online. And if you search long enough, I'm sure there's a <clears throat> podcast or something that he's done that talks mostly about what the book is about. And if you'd like the condensed version uh, of it, you can you can go about doing it uh, that way as well. Um, or the audio uh, version, I'm sure, is available uh, on Amazon. But uh, just really great content, encouraging. And so my prayer is throughout this class as we walk through the content, as we walk through First Peter, uh, that it both challenges us. Maybe there are areas that we need our toes stepped on in a good way, um, but also encourages us and points us to the right motivation for, for evangelism is, is our ultimate uh, heart and desire. Um, and so um, <clears throat> so if you, if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Peter. I want you to uh, turn to just chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 is the introduction. 
in the beginning is a very good place to start. Um, <clears throat> so, First <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, 1 through 2, <clears throat> reads this way. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so he's, he's Peter, apostle of Christ, um, <clears throat> we saw last week, speaks up, uh, says great things, and then uh, shortly thereafter inserts foot in the mouth. Uh, this is Peter post-resurrection, some discipleship and growth in his life, you know, so if you feel like you insert your foot into your mouth, uh, there's encouragement uh, for all of us, you know, that Peter uh, is a good example of, uh, of growing in Christ. He's writing to a group of believers that are scattered um, and uh, and they're throughout the the region region of Asia Minor, and uh, and we're going to find out that they are experiencing uh, certain levels of uh, persecution and suffering because of their identification with Christ. Um, and Peter calls them elect exiles, uh, a word that refers both to their <clears throat> identity before God as chosen and their identity in the world as exiles. Um, Beloved by God, chosen by God, according to his sovereign grace, and yet exiles, <clears throat> that they're not at home in this world. Um, and now the, the language of exile is, is, is really a, <clears throat> a language that uh, takes us back to the Old Testament. Um, when you think about Israel being in exile in the Old Testament, why was Israel uh, in exile in the Old Testament? <clears throat> Particularly think about their Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. What was the, the, the reason or the cause for them going into exile? Forgetting about God. Sorry, if you say it, say it loud. Forgetting about God. Yeah. <clears throat> in part, being in exile in the Old Testament was because of their disobedience mm-hmm. to God. Because they had rebelled against God and God was disciplining uh, his people and taking them into exile. Here, in this sense, Christians are called exiles, not because of our disobedience, but because of our uh, being chosen by God, because of our identity uh, in Christ. And so the language of elect exiles is about our identity in Christ, chosen by God, set apart for God, set apart from the world. We're not at home in the world because we belong to another, and yet we often find our heart and our values at odds with the surrounding culture around us. And there's this, uh, this double tension, our identity in Christ uh, places us in this world with purpose, and yet we're placed in this world where at times we don't feel at home. Um, and so uh, embracing the, the language of exile is important, that we have to understand that, not be surprised by it. I think that's part of what happens as Christians. We just get surprised mm-hmm. that we're not at home. And, um, <clears throat> and sociologists and, and various cultural commentators will tell you there's a shift that's happened, uh, even in the last 10 to, to 20 years, um, even just take the last 10 years, there's a shift that's happened that um, a lot of, uh, of what was valued and cherished within uh, the Christian faith, some of that had influenced and made its way into culture. Um, and some of that was good. There's some things that there's some subculture Christian things that have uh, negatively uh, perhaps played out in culture. But there's some things that were good. And, and Christians at times felt like they had a place and a, and a footing and a grounding uh, and, and stepping into uh, into into the world, uh, it's it's a, a helpful thing to think about. Billy Graham, when he held uh, his uh, his crusade his crusades, he would go to places and he would talk about sin 
without even having to explain. It was just an understanding that there were people knew that they were doing and had done things that were wrong. And the invitation to, to trust in Christ, there was a lot of cultural milieu around that, that it made sense to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so today you may say some of those very same things and people may look at you like, what? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, that does not compute, you know? And so there's a shift that's happening. I, and that shift isn't universal and the same everywhere and every place. So there may be pockets of your life where you don't feel like that's true. There may be pockets of your life where you feel like that's very true. Uh, there may be university context that that feels especially true. There may be work context or neighborhood context where that doesn't feel true. What's really unique about even our culture um, is you can go five miles in any direction, and this could be more or less true based on mm-hmm. where you're at in this surrounding community. So easy to paint with broad strokes, um, but <clears throat> it's important, I think, to recognize that shift. And and if you look at statistics, church attendance, and the number of children uh, born to uh, various faith backgrounds, so that it doesn't look as if, apart from God moving uh, through believers, embracing our call to live for Christ and make Christ known, that that'll change in a drastic way. Um, and so, uh, and if anything, as we seek to reach uh, the, the, the generation that, that's currently growing up before us, uh, there's all the more reason to think about how to articulate our faith um, and our position as elect exiles in the world. Um, and so uh, he says in the book, with the help of God's spirit, we want to become hope-filled and yet fearful. And he means that in the sense of fearing God over man. Humble and respectful, and yet speak the gospel with authority. And we want to live a holy life separate from the world, yet incredibly welcoming welcoming and loving in it. And so there are these three sets uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, these six kind of characteristics over the next few weeks. And so today we're going to focus on hope and future glory as our first uh, point. And so would somebody be willing to read? 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Sorry. Uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Oh, sorry, 17. Yeah. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. <clears throat> so it's, it's really interesting, particularly to, uh, to see the, the framing of conduct yourself with fear in your, uh, in your time of your exile, right? So like that, that's, again, our identity. We're, we're exiles. Peter embraces that. He's, he's telling uh, these believers to embrace their position as exiles. And <clears throat> he goes on to say that we live this way with, with a sense of fear and reverence towards God and holiness in our lives because we've been ransomed. We've been redeemed by the the blood of Christ, uh, and he speaks of the blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or spotless, uh, or spot speaking of the sinlessness of Christ, and how he Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Talking about his uh, incarnation, his birth, his life and ministry, and then ultimately his death and resurrection. And it's through him <clears throat> um, you are believers in God. And notice it says who was raised. Uh, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Now notice this phrase. We, we haven't been in the letters in a while, and so sometimes we don't 
pay as much attention to some of the grammatical things that are taking place. Peter's going to tell you why Jesus died and was raised. He says, so that. Um, this is giving us the, uh, the outcome, uh, the result of that, if you will. Um, your faith and hope are in God. Um, so, so here he's saying <clears throat> that Christ died and was raised so that our hope might be in God. And the hope that we have is going to be a theme that runs throughout. Uh, the, the letter, just consider 1 Peter 3.15, perhaps one of the more well-known verses in the, the book of 1 Peter. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you, now notice this, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then he goes on, if you look at 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, the sufferings that come from identifying with Christ when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We'll actually talk about this today in Mark chapter 9. Uh, but on the heels of Jesus speaking of his death on the cross and his resurrection, what looks like initially looks like defeat um, ends up being his victory. He says on the other side of suffering is glory. And, and the pattern of the Christian life uh, is suffering, then glory. Uh, but we want glory, no suffering. Um, but if we follow a Savior who walked the path of suffering, then glory, it should not surprise us if we experience the fiery trial of suffering, but have the hope of glory. That's what he's saying, that our hope should be in this future glory. And the author of the book says it this way, writing to a group of believers in a world swirling with trials, opposition, rejection, sneers, put down, shaming, reviling. You kind of notice that theme as Peter talks. He talks about their fiery trials, their opposition when they're slandered. You know, there's just this theme throughout it that these believers, their baseline is they're experiencing some measure of opposition, some measure of rejection. It says in the midst of that, Peter's primary goal seems to have been encouraging his readers with a stable and assured future awaiting them at the revelation of Christ. And so when God set out to save us in his divine foreknowledge, he not only removes our guilt and our shame, he not only provides the spirit to empower us towards holiness and obedience to God. Um, he, he doesn't merely just give us a way to, to have the perfect righteousness of Christ. He says, in his foresight and his predetermined plan, uh, it was from the beginning to lead us out of our shame and all the way to glory. Uh, so when you think about your salvation, don't just stop short with just thinking about God forgiving you of your sin and giving you a new standing in Christ. Like that's, that's good. That's rich. We need that hope that we're freed from the guilt um, and the very power of sin. But the, the plan is that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6, that glory is what God has assured us of. Uh, and so it's the hope of future glory that Peter is using to encourage these believers in the face of suffering. Um, and so <clears throat> that theme is so important. Um, and, and the uh, the suffering that they're experiencing and uh, his connection and application of this, this isn't so much directly coming from First Peter, but rather from the book. He makes this argument. He says that shame silences our witness. I remember this being one of, one of the more convicting parts of the book. He says the dominant reason for our lack of evangelism in America isn't the fear of death. 
Rather, we're just beginning to face, like the recipients of 1 Peter, soft persecution. We face being ignored or excluded. We face ridicule or reviling. If we open our mouths with the gospel, we run the risk of others thinking we're closed-minded and unloving. He goes on to say, shame and the fear of exclusion combine like nothing else to quench our spirit for evangelism. Hmm. And I think that that may not be true all the time in every way for all of us, but I think that's a big part of the challenge for for me. And I think it's a big part of the challenge for many Christians. And we're, we're relational people. We care about people. Even the people we want to share the gospel with, the very people that we don't want to be shamed by or rejected by, we actually love them. You know, that there's a care for them. And yet uh, there's also this wrestling in our heart. Um, and he says then, to, to bring this together, the antidote to silencing shame is, a, is the hope of glory, the hope that the earthly isolation and humiliation are only temporary. God who made the world and everything in it will one day include us in his kingdom and exalt us with the king, giving us both honor and a home. Uh, so that idea that we overcome shame by glory, uh, by remembering our future glory is vital. Now, here's what I'll say. <clears throat> I don't know that that... If you just think to yourself in the moment that you're afraid of talking to somebody about your faith, I'm not even I'm not even saying a full-blown gospel conversation, just bringing up your faith in a conversation, bringing up what God's teaching you, or talking about prayer, or talking about some aspect of your life. I love the, the, the language of planting a faith flag. I like thinking about wiggling a doorknob. Sometimes when I'm talking to somebody, I'll talk about my faith in just a subtle way, just to kind of wiggle the doorknob to see if there's an openness or an interest. Um, and, and yet in all of that, in that moment, I don't think that it's going to work the first time that you're afraid if you go, but just remember, future glory is waiting for me. You know, I don't know that it works like that. I think it has to be something that we, we begin to dwell on and begin to, to cherish, that that thought has to be more of a controlling thought of our hearts and our minds. Um, and, and so, again, I didn't plan this. I'm not smart enough to do it. But today we're going to talk about the importance of seeing the glory of Christ and meditating on that and our message that I hope will will provide some even some encouragement uh, in this regard but but I think the encouragement here isn't simplistic it's not it's not just like a mechanical thing like when I when I feel like I'm going to be rejected I just think about God's glory and therefore that's going to overcome it but I think it would help if you start Mm-hmm. I think it would help if you begin to, to dwell on the truths of God's glory as you read the Bible. You begin to, to pay attention to, to the things that it says about Christ. Is it maybe make it your plan as we walk through these next six weeks to read through First Peter a few times and just dwell on what it says about Jesus. In the midst of suffering, look at the way Peter talks about Jesus and commends Jesus. <clears throat> and I think that's the, that's the answer when we think about glory is that we have to fix our heart and our mind uh, on Christ. And he, he makes this point. He says, trials and suffering have a way of unmasking our highest hopes. Mm-hmm. Sadly, far too often they reveal our hopes have actually been in this present age and not in the one to come. Um, so we get more hope and satisfaction from what's right in front of us, the acceptance and the approval uh, of other people that are right in front of us, and that it keeps us uh, from speaking of Christ, that our hope isn't in the age to come. And so there's the age-old adage that, you know, the person being so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. Mm. Um, that can be true, and yet it's also true that we can be no earthly good if we're not heavenly-minded. If we don't have our mindset on the future glory that is to be ours, uh, then, then we may miss even being ready for the work that God uh, has for us. And so, um, 
So he, he kind of sandwiches the thought of future glory with present providence, hope and present providence. I think uh, this is also helpful. Like, as I mentioned, sometimes just thinking about what's in the future, a future that you don't know, that you haven't seen, that you're trusting by faith is kept for you, that's unfadable and uncorruptible, Peter says, an inheritance that is ours. Like, it's hard to wrap your minds around that, though it's astounding when you think about it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it doesn't feel very, like, tangible to us. Uh, there's also there's something that's tangible about God's present providence. Um, look at First Peter two, First uh, Peter two eighteen through twenty five. <clears throat> Peter gives uh, instructions to various um, uh, various people under authority, from the governmental authority, the emperor to the governors, um, <clears throat> and then he, he talks to servants being subject to their masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, this is verse 19, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then flip to First Peter 4:19. Peter talks about the difference between suffering because of our sin and suffering as a Christian, suffering for identifying with Christ. And he says at the end, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Mm. It's hard to think that suffering could be according to God's will, and yet that's what we're told. Um, And even in the midst of suffering unjustly, uh, Peter can say that uh, it's a gracious thing when we honor God because we we imitate Christ who suffered unjustly. Um, that even in our suffering, God is present and God is at work. Um, and so hope in present providence believes that God is at work in our suffering, that nothing can thwart his plans, whether it be a disgruntled boss, an unbelieving spouse, a Supreme Court decision, the next election, an antagonistic unbelieving friend. None of those things are stronger than God. And yet we give a lot of mental space to a lot of those types of things as if they are greater and more powerful than God. Uh, in our hearts, we see those things as stronger than God. Um, and he brings this together when he says, hope and future glory fills our hearts with joy and animates our witness, even overcoming the hindrances to evangelism like shame and exclusion. But hope and active providence in our present circumstances loosens our lips to preach the gospel. Why? Because we recognize that God has put us where we are for such a time as this. This is language from the book of Esther that uh, um, Esther's uncle says to her that God has put you here for such a time as this. A belief that, um, that God is at work in, in our circumstances and we are where we are for God's purpose. And we are to entrust ourselves to God in our present circumstances, believing that God is in control and working. Mm-hmm. And now, <clears throat> when you believe that and you're desiring to share your faith, you're desiring to talk to others about Christ, sometimes the encouragement that I need is I'm not here by accident. Mm -hmm. God put me here with this person at this time for for a reason, and I can trust that. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know what's going to come from the conversation. I don't know how open or receptive they're going to be, but I can trust that it's no accident that God's put me here, mm-hmm. and that He's able to work. And and not only do I know that their suffering or their rejection is temporary in comparison to God's acceptance of me, but I also know that God's providentially worked things out for for this opportunity to come. Um, and so we can we can trust God in the midst uh, of of these things. And that really. Uh, I, I've taken these two, these last two points out of order in the book. He talked about how hope creates opportunities first, but I think it flows out of this belief that God, uh, that we can have hope in, in His present providence. Because First Peter 3:15, and I, we won't talk about it today, but if you read Acts 16, 16 through 40, that's when Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing hymns at midnight as they're in jail. Just wrap your mind around around if you would be doing that if you were uh, locked up in jail at midnight um, and there's an earthquake and all the prisoners uh, could have fleed uh, and the guard is about to kill himself and Paul cries out don't kill yourself we're all here um, and the man is overcome uh, with with fear at what has happened and, and gratitude for what has happened he falls down and said what must I do to be saved um, their, their hope in God in the midst of their suffering that led them to have joy in God rather than bemoan their condition, complain that they were there unjustly, whatever the case may be. Um, their, their present joy in God um, uh, ultimately creates an opportunity for them to talk uh, with this man. But I come back to 1 Peter 3.15. Think about the assumption of 1 Peter 3.15 behind it. It says that we are to honor Christ uh, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. The assumption is that the hope that we have would be visible and evident to a degree that people would say, why are you the way you are? Mm -hmm. Why do you respond the way you respond? Um, And and so that, that also assumes proximity to people. Right, yeah. uh, that we would be known enough by people that they would be able to see some of that, and so that's both a physical proximity, but also a relational proximity of us opening ourselves up enough to people to to demonstrate uh, mm. the the hope that we that we have. And he, he makes this point. He says Peter expected that their evident hope amid suffering would be a catalyst for many unbelievers to inquire about their faith, mm. because hope doesn't merely open our mouths with the gospel. I love the statement, visible hope Hope can also open others' hearts to Christ. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, I, sometimes it takes great suffering and great trial for this to become super evident. Um, I think it's either great crisis or longevity over time in relationships that lead to this happening. Um, there, <clears throat> some of the testimony I, I've heard of um, even, even through... Winnie uh, Woods and all that she's gone through as Chris and Amy have sought to uh, to trust God in the midst of that, the opportunities that have come to speak of Christ uh, to to those who are providing care for her, how it doesn't make sense, uh, the, the hope uh, and the peace that's there also mixed in with all the human elements of fear uh, and doubting what God is doing and how he's working, um, yet through it, uh, just like Jesus says to the to the man whose daughter dies while he stops to help the woman with the blood flow. He says, um, you know, believe. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right. Like even that posture of like I'm trying uh, and even in my unbelief, God, help me. Uh, that type of hope, uh, that visible hope can open others hearts 
uh, to Christ. And so, so <clears throat> it's kind of a, an overview of, of where he goes in this first chapter.